Good morning again to each and every one of you. Good morning to those of you joining us online. We're so glad that you found us and uh, that you are worshiping with us uh, in the unity of the Spirit uh, this morning. If you haven't already done so, please do put your name in the content or in the comments section. Let us know how many people are worshiping with you and where you're worshiping from uh, so that we can stay connected together as a body of Christ. Um, Facebook reminded me this week that it was seven years ago uh, this past week that I was installed as a lead pastor of a local church for the first time. It was Southridge Church in Charleston, West Virginia, and as I thought through that and reflected on that, I recognized that without a doubt, the last three months have been the most challenging, the most unpredictable, uh, the most unusual of my 11 plus years of ministry. I was an associate pastor for four and a half years before I became a lead pastor, was in that role for just shy of three years, then was an associate pastor, executive pastor again uh, for several years, and then came to Linwood to be the lead pastor here. Um, And as I thought about that, I, I kind of recognized this reality that there were no classes in seminary for pastoring through a pandemic or preaching to a camera or uh, a dozen other things that suddenly became not only necessary, but have now become somewhat normal, sort of the next normal. Uh, And then the last three weeks added another layer to all of this with new levels of unrest and violence that we've witnessed in the news and even in our own community. And what stood out to me as I took all of that in was the scripture that I posted seven years ago on June 9th, the day I was to be installed as the lead pastor of a local church. I had started going through the book of Proverbs about 19 days earlier, and the scripture that I posted was Proverbs 19, verses 20 and 21, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And I thanked God for his purposes being the purposes that will stand. And I thanked God for the advice and the instruction that I've received over the years, uh, the wisdom that I've gained, and the wisdom that I have yet to gain. And I don't know about you, but I have been doing a lot of thinking, and a lot of praying, and a lot of watching, and a lot of listening over these last two to three weeks. And as I've done that, I've questioned some of my own motives and my own responses, and my own reactions, and I've tried to pay attention to them and not just allow them to run on autopilot. And I've been seeking to learn and seeking to understand and seeking to respond appropriately. And as I've done that, I've listened to more sermons, more podcasts, read more articles, reached out to friends, and... uh, just tried to be open to what God might want to say to me. And there was a scripture that was shared in one of the sermons that I listened to from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 24 through 26. And in this 
Paul has just been talking about spiritual gifts, and he says in the second half of verse 24, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And as I reflected on that scripture and what it says to those of us in the church and how we're to be a model for the rest of the world, and as I prayed through that, I decided to add a message to this series this weekend and will preach the message I had planned for this weekend at the end of the series. I think it actually fits better there. But I firmly believe that God's word has something to say to each and every one of us in every situation and every circumstance of our lives. And I believe God's word has something to say to each and every one of us in this season, in these circumstances that we face. And so as we continue our series titled The Heart of a Disciple, we are looking at what is at the heart, what is at the core, what is at the center of a disciple, of a follower of Jesus Christ, an apprentice of Jesus, one who is learning to trust and obey Jesus. That is the definition of a disciple. And the heart of a disciple would be speaking to the center of the passion or the emotions of a follower of Jesus Christ, of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Answering this question, what propels a disciple to action? What directs the actions that we take? And so in week one, we looked at Jesus on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples, a couple of followers, and this idea that the heart of a disciple is on fire and that encountering Jesus sets the heart of a disciple on fire. When he walks into the room, every heart starts burning. That's the idea, that when we encounter Jesus, and it's not a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience, it's meant to be many times throughout the day that we would encounter Jesus and it would cause our hearts to start burning for the things that make his heart burn. And then last week we looked at this idea that the heart of a disciple is hungry, that we're hungry for more of Jesus, for more of his word, for more of his ways to be our ways, his thoughts to be our thoughts. And the bottom line that the heart of a disciple has a tremendous appetite for more of Jesus. And we looked at the idea in Scripture of moving from the milk to the meat, moving from that which is easy to swallow and easy to digest, and moving beyond those elementary principles into the meat that we chew on that provides greater sustenance and greater strength and greater nourishment. And so today I want to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. I wish we could just do the whole chapter, but we'd be here till 3 or 4 if I was moving at a pretty good clip and we didn't take any breaks. Romans 12 is one of those chapters that if I could just get every Christian to memorize it and live it out in their daily lives, it would set the world on its, on its heels. I mean, we're talking about one of the most powerful chapters in scripture for actionable content of what it is to be a disciple. And so at the very middle of this chapter, we have a very powerful 
instruction from Paul through the Holy Spirit, working through Paul uh, to instruct us. And so to give you a little bit of context, the chapter starts with that famous, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then it moves into a, a conversation about the spiritual gifts in the church. And then we pick up this passage. And I noticed when I was reading through this in the Banding Together journal, we read through Romans maybe a month or two ago. Maybe it was a little longer than that. I'm not 100% sure. But I was reading through it in the New International Version, and there was a, a paragraph or a section heading in my Bible, and it was introducing verses 9 through 21. And the section heading was, Love in Action. Paul is just about to describe in these few short verses what love in action looks like. And yet when I looked at that, I somehow omitted the space the first time I looked at it, and I had to take a double take. And so instead of seeing love in action, I saw love in action. And I realized that God's solution for the whole world through the body of Christ, through the church, through the believers, is love in action. And yet a plague on the world occurs when we remove that one space and we just practice love in action. An inactive love A love that has not been transformed by the renewing of our mind, that does not take our spiritual gifts, which Paul has just been talking about, and actually put them into action in tangible ways. And so what Paul is going to give us here in these next verses is tangible ways that we can put the love of God, which has been shed into our hearts through Christ's sacrifice and and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can put that into action in tangible ways in our relationships inside the church and outside the church. And that as we move out into this place, we can love this world in tangible, practical ways. And so he begins in verse 9 with three short punchy statements. First, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Love must be sincere. And what he's basically saying there is that agape love, that's, there's four different words that are translated as love in the New Testament. We see three of the four in these few verses. And so the first one that we're dealing with here, he's talking about agape love. He's talking about the self-sacrificing surrender, the unconditional love of God. It must be sincere. The command is that we would love with sincerity. And what we're translating there as sincerity is really this idea of loving without hypocrisy. Love without any illusion, without any ulterior motive, without any hypocrisy. It's loving others completely unfeigned, that there is nothing that is not sincere or authentic about the love that we extend, that love must be sincere and continues. Hate what is evil. Hate what is evil. And it's interesting, in the, in the New Testament, there are a couple of words that are translated as hate. The one that we have here is better translated as abhor. We don't use abhor a lot today. We don't say, oh, I abhor that. We might say, I detest that. When we really hate it, we don't just hate it a little bit, but we detest it. We abhor what is evil. And the other words that are used 
and are often translated as hate are more comparative terms. And so you could actually translate it as love less, love love what is evil less. And that is not at all what we are being instructed here to do. We are instructed to abhor, to detest what is evil. And so when we see something that is evil, we don't just love it a little less than the other things around us. We abhor it. We detest it. When we see something like racism, we detest that. We call it what it is. It's evil. And we want nothing to do with it. We abhor it. And then we cling to what is good. We cling to what is good. That word cling literally means to glue to, to unite with. It's the same word that gets translated from the Old Testament to leave and cleave, that a man and a woman shall leave their family and shall cleave to one another and be united into one flesh. When that verse from Genesis is translated in the New Testament, it's this word cleave or cling to, that we literally glue to what is good or unite with what is good. We don't just rub up against it every now and then and then go on. We like lock ourselves with what is good. We cling to what is good for dear life. We don't want to let go. And so I was thinking through all of this and it occurred to me that we're going to have children in the room today. And I thought about verse 9, and I thought, you know what? Kids do this better than adults. Kids love with sincerity and authenticity. That's why we're so drawn to them. And so good for you, kiddos. I see some of you in the back there. I see some of you down front here. But we have a lot to learn from you in loving with complete sincerity, no ulterior motive. And that gaze that an infant gives to its mother that just absolute love and acceptance. We can learn from that. And kids hate what is evil. And they cling to what is good, right? You walk through the door, they literally wrap around your leg and cling to what is good because daddy or mommy is home and daddy or mommy is good, so I'm going to wrap that up and I'm not going to let go until they kick me off, right? You know what I'm talking about. I can't even get out the door in the morning sometimes without three or four or five hugs because they want to cling to what is good. They, they want to get one more hug in. And they do this better than us. We can learn a lot from them and pay attention to them. And then my mind went to blessed are the children, right? Do not Let them come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. We can learn a lot from our kids when it comes to putting love into action. And as we move on here, it's it's so interesting to see how Paul builds upon this foundation that was laid in verse 9, that love must be sincere, we must hate what is evil, we must cling to what is good. Then in verse 10, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly Love, And this is the second of the, the New Testament words that we translate as love. It's Philadelphia, brotherly love. That's why there's a city in Revelation called Philadelphia, which literally was a city of brotherly love. And then Philadelphia in Pennsylvania here in America carries the same name. Philadelphia is this brotherly or sometimes it's better translated as friendship love. The love between friends, the love between those who are brothers in arms, maybe, those who are, who are comrades, who are 
and maybe have bonded in a unique way and are experiencing that deep love. But the word be devoted at the beginning of that really stood out to me as I was studying through this. It's, it's a Greek word, philostorgai, philostorgoi, and storgoi, storge is broken down on the screen so that you can say, oh, I had a lesson in Greek. That's really neat. You probably won't want to order your lunch in Greek, but you'll know a few Greek words. Storge is the Greek word for family love, the love that a, that a father has for a son and a son for a father, a daughter for a mother and a mother for a daughter, is storge love. It's familial love. It's love that has the bond of flesh and blood. And so he's basically saying, be devoted is this combination of friendship love. You see that in philos and storge, family love. It's combining two types of love together in the devotion that we have to one another in our brotherly love, in our friendship love. Solomon said in Proverbs 18.24, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I think he's talking about being devoted to brotherly love, being focused on and devoted to brotherly love. And the second half of that verse is to honor one another above yourselves. To honor one another above yourselves means to literally give preference in value to one another over yourselves. And so as I thought on that and reflected on that, the only person that Scripture allows me to relegate to second-class status is myself. Nobody else. The only person that Scripture allows me to relegate to second-class status in this world is me. Nobody else. No brothers, no sisters, no strangers, no, no people over there that do that. Only me. I'm the only person that I can relegate to second-class status. And if we could figure this out as a world, man, we would be in much, much better shape. Because we're talking about a you-first attitude instead of a me-first attitude. A you-first attitude, not I want the big one, give it to me first. It's you take the big one, I'll have the other one. It's a you-first attitude. And I believe this becomes especially important with people that do not look like me or dress like me or vote like me or live like me. That when we develop a you-first attitude for the people that are out there, not just the people that are in here, that's when the world starts to change. And this is a lot easier to do with people that do look like us and act like us and vote like us and dress like us. It's easier for parents to want to put their children first, and I want my kids to have a better life than I had. That's easy to do, but what about somebody else's kids? Or it's easy for us to adopt a mindset that says, I want to put my elders first, my grandma, my grandpa, my parents. I want to make sure that they have a comfortable retirement or they have a comfortable living. I want to take care of them. But it's a little harder when we want to do that for somebody else's. Or when Scripture sends us to them and says, go do this for somebody else's parents. And it's easy to do this for elected officials that we voted for instead of elected officials maybe that we didn't vote for. And yet, there's no asterisk. It doesn't say honor others above yourselves as long as. It just says do it. Honor others above yourselves. And verse 11 kind of gives us a little breather, and we need it by this time because 9 and 10 have been laid it on pretty thick, haven't they? And so there's just a little breather, and it basically says... 
Don't grow weary in doing good. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Don't grow weary in doing good because this is hard, especially at first. Especially at first. It takes a lot of effort to love with sincerity, to hate what is evil, to cling to what is good, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love and to honor one another above ourselves. That takes a lot of effort at first, but it shouldn't take a lot of effort forever. Just like if we go to the weight room and we start lifting weights, it's going to be hard at first to, to put 100 pounds over my head on a bar. But if I work up to it and I do it regularly, it gets easier, and now I can do more heavy lifting with less effort, and, and we grow stronger the more we do these things. But if we just do it once, kind of a weekend warrior, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to do all that, and then we wake up Monday morning and we are so sore. And we grow weary of doing good, and we lose our zeal, and we forget that we're actually serving God, not just these people. We're, we're serving the Lord. We're obeying Him. We're following Him. We're trying to live like Jesus in these relationships and in these circumstances. And that's why the New Testament tells us several times that we are serving God. We are not necessarily serving each other. You'll get tired of serving other people. Well, we should never tire of serving God who gave everything that we might be in his family, that we might be called children of God. So that's why Galatians 6, 9 echoes this, do not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time you shall reap a harvest. That's why Colossians 3, 23 says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ephesians has a similar passage, and Philippians has a similar passage, and Timothy has a similar passage. And then verse 12, kind of rounding out this first paragraph of what love in action looks like. We're told to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. To be joyful in hope means to be filled with joy and gladness and rejoicing in the hope we have in Jesus Christ. To be joyful in hope full of joy in the hope that we have. To be patient in affliction. Patient in affliction. Patience there is the perseverance. It's the endurance. We're, we're enduring the trials that this world brings at us on a regular basis. We are patient in those. We are enduring in those. We don't always do this so well, and we can't learn much from our kids on this one because they're no better at it than we are, right? It's hard to be patient in affliction. It's hard to be persevering in really difficult trials. And the last three months have presented plenty of trials for most people. We usually just want it to stop, right? We just want it to stop. Just want it to go away. Just want to change the channel. We just want it to stop. And that's why I believe the third phrase in verse 12 is so important, that, that we would be faithful in prayer. Faithful in prayer. Now, the word faithful could mean being full of faith as we pray. It could mean uh, being devoted, like the faithfulness of a man to a wife and a wife to her husband. But in this usage, it really would translate more as constant, steadfast, be faithful, be constantly in prayer, be steadfast in prayer. 
Don't take breaks from praying. Don't stop praying. Don't push the pause button on praying, that we would be constantly in prayer so that we will be joyful in hope and patient in affliction. And then this last verse that we're looking at today, verse 13, uh, has two, two phrases, two commands, to share with God's people who are in need and to practice hospitality. And if you're not careful, you'd think, well, those are pretty much synonymous, right? That, we just, that just means we're supposed to have church folk over. And when we hear somebody's going through a difficult time, we share something that we have with them, and we practice hospitality. And then we share and we practice hospitality. But it's really interesting. They're two totally different, two totally different phrases, two totally different commands. The sharing with God's people who are in need is literally giving to meet the needs of the saints, contributing to the needs of the saints. And so this was a big deal in the New Testament church because oftentimes professing faith in Jesus Christ and becoming a saint would cost you your business, would cost you your job, would cost you your livelihood, might cost you your family or your inheritance. And so those who did have contributed to the needs of those who did not. And you can read all about this at the end of Acts chapter 2. They brought in their stuff and they sold their stuff and they contributed to anybody who, as they had need. It's mentioned again in Acts chapter 4. And so that's what we're talking about there, making sure we're taking care of the fellowship of the believers. But practicing hospitality is totally different. It literally means to practice loving strangers. And not just when they show up to your door, but going out and finding strangers and loving them. That word hospitality here is the Greek word philozenian. Philozenian. Do you notice philos again? Friendship love. Xenian being a form of the, the Greek word xenos, which means stranger. So we're talking about loving strangers, not loving those that are in the fellowship, but loving strangers as if they were brothers, as if they were friends. Loving them and pursuing them. The word practice there is, is the same word that is used in other forms to say persecute. But the meaning is clearly that we're assaulting people with friendship love, assaulting strangers with friendship love, that we are on a search and love mission. Not a search and destroy mission, but a search and love mission. Have you ever heard somebody that's very gregarious, very outgoing, very personable, described this way? He never met a stranger, just a friend he didn't know yet. That should describe a whole lot of us, that we never met a stranger. In fact, we're seeking strangers, seeking those who do not look like us or act like us or or live like us, or vote like us, that are stranger than us, in order to love them, in order to show friendship, love to them, in order to find them, hunt them down, and showing them some love. And this is just the opposite of prejudice. Prejudice literally means to prejudge to prejudge. We see the stranger, we see something about them, and we prejudge that stranger instead of seeking them out in order to love them. And so we're not just being hospitable to those who look and act like us and prejudicing, prejudging everyone else. Instead, we're doing what Jesus said for us to do. In Luke 14, he said, when you throw a party, don't just invite the people like you. 
so that you're basically throwing a boomerang and it'll come back around to you and then you invite them over and they'll invite you over and then you'll invite them over and it's just an exchange. He says, no, invite the strangers, invite the poor and the downcast. And later in this chapter, he gives an example with the parable of the great banquet where God has thrown a banquet and people are too busy to come to it. And he says, go out into the streets and the byways and the alleys and find the people that nobody has ever invited to dinner and you invite them to my dinner. That's the example. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what happened to me. I was invited to have a seat at the table of the king. I couldn't get there on my own. So Jesus came and lived and died and rose again so that I could make a way to sit at the king's table. And now we're sent to go out and bring people back. We're sent to go out and not just be indifferent, not just give them their space, but to find them and to love them, and to bring them in. And I think when we do this, when we do philozenian, we're, we're, we're graduating from sympathy to empathy. And they're on two different levels. Sympathy is very different than empathy, because sympathy, you feel sad for someone. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, bless his heart. Whereas empathy goes to the next level and says... I'm going to lament with this person. I'm going to feel sad with this person. There's very, very different levels between sympathy and empathy. And God could have stayed up in heaven and felt bad for the mess that we had made of this world, but he chose instead to enter the mess in the person of Jesus Christ, to enter all the dysfunction, all the nonsense, all the hatred, all the prejudice, all the violence, all the anger. He chose to come down into it so that he could empathize, so that he could lift us up, so that he could redeem us and redeem fallen humanity and take us up to another level, to his level. And so sometimes this takes the form of me understanding I really don't understand I don't understand my neighbor. I don't understand the strangers. I don't understand the things that they are doing, those people that are far off that look and act very differently than I do. And so I acknowledge that and I understand that instead of pretending that I do, instead of prejudging and pretending that I know what it's like to be a certain person or to have grown up in a certain neighborhood or with certain conditions. And for me lately, it has been recognizing that the farther you are from a problem, the simpler the solutions appear. The farther you are from a problem, the simpler the solutions appear. And yet when we get really close and we kind of move into the neighborhood and we get a little closer, we see these problems are a little more complex. They're a little more multi-layered. And we don't just kind of stand from a distance. We, we move in, we ask questions, and we question our own assumptions, and we really seek to listen and to ask God, what do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to respond to this? And if we're so bold, we, we stop seeing the strangers on television as strangers, and we start imagining that they were our own brother-in-law or our nephew or our friends. 
And how would we feel and how would we respond if that was our own flesh and blood? And so Paul continues this as we move kind of out of this. I wish I could go through verse by verse, 14 through uh, 21. In verse 14, he tells us to bless those who persecute you. He says some really, really crazy stuff here. Live in harmony with one another. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. But he sums it all up beautifully in verse 21, and this is where we'll kind of land the plane. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Because remember back in verse 9, we're clinging to that good, right? We're loving with sincerity. We're hating what is evil, having nothing to do with what is evil, not being overcome by evil, but overcoming evil with good, with good. And so our bottom line, sort of the summary of all of this, is that the heart of a disciple puts love into action in these tangible ways. The heart of a disciple is motivated and compelled and driven and pushed forward and passionate about putting love into action by being sincere, by hating what is evil, by clinging to what is good, by being devoted to one another in brotherly love and honoring one another above ourselves, keeping our spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, being joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, sharing with God's people who are in need and practicing hospitality so that we will not be overcome by evil, but that we individually and collectively and corporately will overcome evil with good. I remember watching an Andy Stanley message. I was looking for it. I couldn't find it. It was years ago. And I still remember the bottom line. And that's why I spend a lot of time on these bottom lines because people text them to me every now and then and say, I was, just, I was just thinking about this and this bottom line popped into mind. And the bottom line from that message, whatever the message was, was when you don't know what to do, ask what love requires of you. When you don't know what to do, when you're watching the moon the news or you're in a conversation and you're seeing something take place and you don't know what to do, ask, what does love require of you? And then do it. Do it. The Holy Spirit is sitting right there waiting for you to ask the question so they can whisper the answer so you can do what love requires of you. Galatians 6.2 tells us to carry each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ. Did you know there was a law of Christ? I thought Christ came to get rid of the law. What's the law of Christ? It's the last thing he said. A new command I give you. In the upper room before they left and before the chain of events that led to him on a cross, he had a moment with his disciples at the end of John chapter 13. and He said, a new command I give you. The law of Christ is one command. Love one another. As I have loved you, so also you must love one another. That's the law of Christ. So we can ask, what would Jesus do? When you don't know what to do, ask what love requires of you. Or ask, what would Jesus do? Because he modeled this better than anybody else. 
And if you know what Jesus did, you'll be able to answer the question, what would Jesus do? And then do it. Even if they aren't, whoever they are, the strangers, the knuckleheads in your own family, (laughs) or your own church. You ask, what would Jesus do? And then do that. Jesus' command can be summarized into two words. Go love. Go love. Go love. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word that it speaks to us in every season of life, that it speaks to us in every moment of the day. And we pray, God, that we would be a people who seek to live out your word, to put your love into action in our lives and in the lives of others. We thank you that you were not content to love us from a distance, but that you chose to come and to enter the mess with us and to love us in real and tangible ways and to welcome us into the family of God. I pray, Lord, if there is somebody within the sound of my voice, whether that's in the room or through the various connections and mediums that this may be transmitted, that that has never received that gift of your love, never received the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet they've been feeling this this angst and this tension at the state of affairs in the world around us that, that your spirit would minister to their spirit, draw them into relationship with you, draw them into a relationship with the God of the universe, that they would accept the gift of salvation. And for those of us who already have, God, I pray that we would not be content to love from a distance, but that we would go, that we would seek out those who are different from us in order to show love to them, in order to befriend them, to gain understanding. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.